When you choose an operating system and start to develop for it, you're making a home for yourself. What happens when that home goes away, not once, but twice? And what happens when in your new home, your hardware just doesn't want to cooperate? I sit down with Lucas Hartman to talk about his history in computing, his migration to free and open source software, and how his personal history impacted his new project, the MNT Reform, a laptop that not only runs free software, but is also free hardware, user repairable and approachable, here on Libra Lounge. You're listening to Libra Lounge, the podcast about user freedom and all things free, including free and open source software, free culture, free hardware, games, biohacking, and all things related. I'm your host, Serge, he, him pronouns. Now, on with the show. I started programming as a kid when I got my first computer. It was Sinclair ZX81. And uh, it didn't have any software except for the programs printed in a book. And I think in the user manual, like the user manual had an explanation of basic and so on. So I was kind of forced to to learn a bit of basic or at least to be able to type in programs from from a book to make the computer do something. So that was, yeah, that was in uh, the payoff, right? And I mean, it was impossible to save the programs to cassette uh, tapes so that was possible um, I'm not I don't really remember if I did that from the beginning probably not but uh, pretty early yeah and um, anyway so yeah I went through many computers uh, many home computers uh, pretty late so there was kind of a time delay between when these systems were actually on on the market and like current and when I got them so because I'm I'm uh, 35, and uh, so it was the late 80s, early 90s when I had like 8-bit computers and uh, 16-bit computers. And then in the mid-90s when when people already had PCs, I still had an Amiga. Um, So yeah, there was always a bit like of a technology lag between what I got and what was current. But it it was kind of okay because I didn't, didn't know that there was other stuff already out there. I was living in the countryside, pretty isolated. Yeah, that that was just, you know, for me, the computers that I had. And it, they were super fascinating. Yeah, I was always programming a bit on them. Later, I learned. So on the, on the Commodore 64, I learned um, Assembler. And then on the Amiga, I learned C. Then the web appeared. So the internet came to us, I think, in... 1997 with dial-up i learned about html and then learned some Perl. like i got a i remember i i bought a book about yeah i think with i went with my father to a bookshop and i saw this book about web programming and like cgi programming in Perl. and i i uh, wanted that book and i think my father bought it and then was the first time I wrote programs that would, you know, make dynamic web applications. And at that time, uh, I was working on a game. So I really wanted to do games, actually. I often forget that. So I did many prototypes of games. I I made a real-time strategy game that was never completed. And I had, like, recruited later from the Internet to uh, graphics artists, like 3D 3D artists uh, who were <clears throat> from the UK. Like one was from the UK, other was from uh, Croatia. So I, I had never met them. And uh, the question was, how do we collaborate on this game? 
and then I wrote like a little forum slash file storage thing in Perl. And that was just natural. I wasn't really thinking about, okay, should I, you know, what is the collaboration platform? I was 16 or so. Uh, I didn't really think, like reflect on this. It was just like, okay, this is kind of the natural thing. We need a, we need an online thing to share files and graphics and, and uh, concepts and so on. Um, so those were my first like web applications that were only only used by, by me and uh, our little team then. So so yeah, you had so you had your Amiga, and then you had I guess a, like a PC that you were connecting to the internet. Well, no, I was like at the, in the beginning, I was I was uh, connecting uh, with the Amiga to the internet. Yeah, yeah with the thousand two hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a web browser on a CD. You know, I had a CD-ROM, external CD-ROM, and I got some kind of CD uh, with a web browser. Uh, I browse and uh, a dial, you know, a TCP/IP stack program called Miami. And I had my Supra Express modem, 33.6K baud. And then I dialed up and went to the web. You've got this long history. So how did you first encounter free and open source? Okay, so I think that was actually when I got a PC. Um, I think it was just a borrowed PC at first. Um, I installed, I was thinking... Ah, yeah, it has an ISDN card, so we got ISDN, like an upgrade from from the analog phone line to the digital phone system. So uh, it was promised to get a bit more, you know, data rate and two, you know, two connections, so my parents could still be on the phone while I was on the internet. And uh, but I couldn't use my modem for that anymore, I think. So uh, I got this PC with a ISDN card. And I decided, okay, I want to use this PC as kind of the uplink um, and over no, uh, over a serial line, I will still be able to use my Amiga to access the internet um, because it didn't really occur to me that I would use the PC for that um, because it was somehow very uninteresting. To do that, I installed FreeBSD on the box. I think it was FreeBSD. And I try to figure that out, you know, how to how to dial how to how to do the dial-up thing with ISDN and the IP forwarding and stuff. And it was super alien to me, like this whole Unix <clears throat> stuff and the manual pages and the shells and everything. It was it was very exciting, but also very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I remember the C64 experience. Like it was a lot because. You know, you have 164, uh, then you have maybe another, or uh, it was a time when people were selling them already used on uh, on the classifieds, you know, on a local newspaper. People already got rid of them, and I was like, it was still kind of new to me, so we could, I could grab um, one more C64 and like, you know, hundreds of floppy disks um, from somebody's house, and then it was days of just checking out those disks you know like going through each directory trying each program um you know no idea what would come up there uh i mean most of it was of course pirated games but um also occasional surprises and stuff that i just didn't understand you know what the hell is is this program uh but that was very interesting and later the first internet experience was of was similar but it was not browsing floppy disks of other people uh, but it was, you know, other computers. <laughs> uh, 
um, over the phone wire, but it was the same kind of scavenging. Yeah, and then it was the same again with FreeBSD and Linux. Uh, be, uh, so I was wondering, okay, what do all the files do uh, in the bin directory? What do all the files do in the etc directory? What is all that stuff? And it was like a lot of stuff compared to what I knew from the Amiga. I mean, the cool thing is that the Amiga was kind of, it kind of borrowed some ideas from Unix. So the shell wasn't so different and this kind of concept of commands and, and libraries and so on. So I knew that already from the Amiga. Um, it was just a bit more cryptic uh, on on uh, BSD and Linux. By the way, my first Linux was uh, Suse, we call it here. It's German distribution. Uh, now I think owned by Novell. Yeah, so that was like, I, that was my first Linux, like really like, like it wasn't a box bought from a bookshop, I think. <laughs> and uh, that was my first uh, Linux experience, I think. I might, I might lie because there was also some uh, experimental Amiga Linux distribution, but it didn't really work, I think. But um, yeah, and, and these things, these distributions, I remember installing and going through the installer and it had like, you know, it felt like it had millions of options and programs and I was just completely overwhelmed by, I have no idea what to install, what do I need, you know? <laughs> so many things, uh, it's uh, in the package manager. What is all that? So yeah, that was kind of a new a new world to explore. And um, I, I don't, I can't really get my timeline straight. I think I I tried that for a while and then kind of gave up on it because it was just, you know, I I couldn't figure it out. I didn't know what what I should use, what was the it it felt like you had to know already. You had to be already a member of a special very well-informed club of people and you're supposed to know what to do. Um so that was kind of like an elite feeling that you know also it was like the feeling of i'm not very welcome in this world of you know unix um because somehow i lack the experience um yeah so it was not very welcoming so when you when you got that feeling of not being welcome how did you respond to that yeah so i i gave up i think um for a while because yeah i couldn't really get a lot of things done with it um so I went, I think, back to Windows, or I went to Windows, like, I, I don't remember which version, maybe it was Windows 2000 or so, that was pretty pretty decent, actually, because all of my friends from school had, you know, Windows, and, and I wanted to play games with them over the internet, like, we played StarCraft and all that. I didn't, I didn't spend any, you know, further thought on, on open source software and free software and Linux for a while, like, for a few years, and then... Then for a brief moment, I was using BOS, like maybe for one and a half years. I was very into that. It was, I remember it coming up and then I wrote an email to be incorporated in Paris, I think, or just to be incorporated and and told them, you know, I am a student. I cannot afford a BOS, but I really would like to program for it. And uh, a few days later, I had a mail, you know, from Paris, like, France uh, B division they just sent me a CD BUS 4.5 or something and uh, I installed it and it was it was great you know it was like oh my god this is how it should be <laughs> mm. 
so I had a fantastic one and a half years or so of like a really fantastic computer experience. So I programmed then a lot of C++ on it. It was super easy. Yeah, and it had and it had this beautiful model where you could, where applications had really well established API interfaces to each other. So programs were much more cooperative than they were than they. St- I would even argue than they still are on many platforms. It's like we're still almost catching up. <laughs> Yeah, everything felt like, okay, this is really from, you know, cut from the same cloth, so to speak. And there were a lot of very talented people involved in the infrastructure also around it. The community was super welcoming. They had, um, I'm, I don't remember how it was called, but there was some kind of website where you could get the latest B uh, applications. And um, there was a user group uh, in Germany, also Begeistert, and I went there to Cologne, I still couldn't, you know, I, I, I still wasn't 18, so I, my father had to drive me there, <laughs> I remember, and we were sleeping in the youth hostel, meeting other B users um, from around Europe, I think, and uh, so that was for a while, like very short while, a very, very nice computing experience again, until it broke apart, like, because the company went bank- bankrupt, Again, you know, like, so So I had this experience from the Amiga ending uh, when I just really had a hold on it. And then I had the same experience again with B. Uh, so so it's like your home is, you know, is, is gone each time and then you have to find a, a, new, a new home. So is that, is that when you found, is that when you went back to the FreeBSD Linux thing and, and settled there? Um, no. No. So what I, I used Windows for a few years and because I was kind of like, I gave up on it. You know, I was like, okay, <laughs> the things that are really nice are not happening in computing. Computing will, you know, the computer is just now some kind of generic, boring tool. I will just use what is mainstream. Um, and uh, I did web programming, no more native. Um, and then... Uh, I went to ah, so so I went to university, and uh, I tried two times to study computer science, and uh, I dropped out two times of computers out of computer science, and then I got accepted into the Berlin University of the Arts, and um, everybody had a Macintosh, you know, like a, everybody had an iBook, <laughs> and I became a Mac user. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was art school. You know, I can't show up with my Windows, with a Windows machine in art school. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of interested also. Like, I was like, hmm, Apple, Apple started to do really well suddenly again. And um, they made interesting, like, they, they had bumped up their product quality significantly. And it, 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 their OS X took off. And it was a time of later Snow Leopard and so on. And I was very into OS X and it was fun. But um, I bought, I think, my last Mac book in 2013. So that's seven years ago, yeah. I still I still have it and use it to watch Netflix um, <laughs> because I need DRM for that. Um, um, and uh, then I got... After there was kind of a peak of uh, peak Apple, let's say, peak Mac OS X, 
or macOS 10, I don't know how to call it actually. Um, and uh, things started to go downhill. It was apparent that Apple was focusing on mobile and uh, that they would that their engineering quality went down and, and and somehow you were suddenly forced into this whole app store advertising updates stuff starts to break it's inconsistent and so on and i i started to not, not like it anymore so and i was like this is kind of the the people that i then was communicating with more and more were from had more like a hacker background and on the Mac, I was also more into programming again, also into native programming. And uh, I realized that I should look into open source software again because I, I just tried like, maybe I was bored or frustrated, I, I don't remember, but I wanted to run Linux on this MacBook. And I thought, how hard could it be, right? Uh, I, I'm, I, I feel like I'm going to find out the answer is hard. <laughs> it was hard, but it was possible. Someone wrote a weird bootloader and... Uh, I think called Refined, and you could actually do it. Uh, so it was a Retina MacBook Pro 2013, and I was running then Debian on it. Um, and uh, that was the time when I started to stay on Linux. Uh, it was really not the best experience at first because there was like a lot of weird driver problems. So, for example, the Wi-Fi didn't work, the audio didn't work. Um, but it was very fast. Suddenly, like, the machine had a lot more performance. You know, I felt like the same machine was much faster with this free operating system than what Apple was delivering for it. <laughs> and um, But I felt also constrained by weird driver problems. And uh, I thought, I want this, but wouldn't it be great if everything would just work and I would also understand how the machine is built because I realized how much weird proprietary stuff was going on, you know, during boot and and I realized I don't really understand what this computer is doing. Then that was kind of the start to to research into and think about a machine, a portable machine that um, would have that I could understand, you know, that where I knew what it was doing when it was booting. Where everything was, yeah, where everything was something that, that was designed to work with it. It sounds like these other systems that you, that you really liked working with, you know, from the, from the Commodore C64 to the Amiga. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you didn't have a B machine, but, but, you know, the BOS and the Mac, these were all systems that, you know, they came from one... Mm -hmm you know, one company, one team. And so yes. everything that came out of it was designed to work together uh, as opposed to that experience that you had with that, with the early Linux system yeah. where, Oh, like this driver for this, you know, Wi-Fi card. Oh, I have to, so maybe I have to change the driver yes. or maybe I have to make my own driver or maybe I have to change the card and this and that and the other thing. And so that sounds like that unification and drive for singular experience is a big part of of this design decision that you had for for the MNT reform. Yes, that's that's correct. So we should talk about what the MNT reform is, which is your complete not just open source, but completely free hardware with no binary blobs, you know, completely open specs, 3D printable, and I think I think for me most exciting 
is designed to be worked on. So not just, oh, you know, yeah, if you find a company that will three, you know, that will build you this yeah. case and build you all these parts in this exact configuration, but hey, you can swap out Correct. each component. That's the idea. The idea is that you really own it, you know, um, and that all the decisions that we make in designing it is, you know, speaking that language that it, this is really yours, we give it to you, then it's not ours anymore. Uh, do with it what you want. We will help you doing that. Um, the, you can ask any questions. There is no taboo here, no secret mystery, uh, except maybe in some of the parts that we have to use or that we, you know, uh, that we soldered there. Um, but that can hopefully also be exchanged and, you know, alternatives can be made for it. But another part is also that we will, we ship it with a Linux distribution that where everything works uh, out of the box, you know. Um, so I did like a lot of testing, um, compiled a lot of software on it. I we have a set of kernel patches that also will need to be upstream, but there is other there there are other projects that go the way like okay uh, we have this cheap hardware we'll throw it in the market and the community will figure out the software, right? But um, for this thing it's important that there is a reference uh, operating system a reference platform, including applications um, that is tested and. Uh, that, that you can use, like that you can turn it on and, and you can use these things and it's not an afterthought. I mean, that's very exciting. And it sounds like, you know, I know we, we, we took a long way to get to the M&T reform, but it sounds like these experiences you had of using these these very polished systems and then losing your home. <laughs> like, you know, you'd set up and then it's like, oh, I'm finally home. And then it's like, oh, the company goes out of business. And so now you're you're stuck again. It has really informed the way you're building this because in 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 many ways, of course, the fact that you're using existing software and leveraging existing free software is going to help you. But also the design and the way you're putting out these designs means that even if you were to go away, that someone else could pick up the, you know could pick up all the pieces and build up, build upon that. Yes. Yeah, so it's designed to. It's designed to outlive us, you know. I I hope we won't uh, go away, but should we go away, then we will do a anything we can um, to to provide all the information that someone can pick it up and that more people can pick it up and that it can be maybe kind of you know <laughs> uh, contagious. Um, and and also this is at the same time a protection from you know patent trolls or something so if somebody should attack the company and we are forced to close it then the information is already out there and you cannot easily erase it um, from the internet so that's why for example we already release the sources before we even sell the thing um, and we update them as we go because any day someone could sue us or you know create a problem for us um, but then everything is already out there so <laughs> I encourage uh, people to clone the rep repo also. So that also means that you, have, that you can easily have an ecosystem around your platform. That would be yes. very challenging. It's like if I want to build a peripheral for, I don't know, Dell or Apple, like, yeah. there's a pretty big barrier for me to do that, right? Uh, yeah, you need an agreement with Apple to do that, yeah. 
but it sounds like if since all the specs are out, I or you know somebody could just make up a new part, have it printed from one machine, have it printed for ten or a million. Yeah, that's very, I mean that's a very exciting different development style for hardware than we've seen. Yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if it uh, how how well it will work out for us, but it's an experiment also, right? Mm. And uh, <clears throat> I feel pretty comfortable with this. Uh, much more comfortable than uh, you know keeping keeping everything for for us like protecting everything uh, like it's a big secret and um, fighting off anyone who wants to copy it or something. This is really this kind of stuff makes me very tired. You know, I'm really tired about uh, copyright questions and uh, this kind of protection of ideas and so on. It's it just makes me yawn. You know, like uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely not interested in that. I just want to, I want to have progress. I want to have knowledge shared and uh, I want to have a nice community around it. So you put out this crowd supply to, for, this, mm -hmm. for this project. And yeah. uh, as of the time of recording, which is, you know, it's going to be earlier than, than when you're listening to this, but uh, you've, already, you've already met your goal. So the yeah. thing is coming out for sure. Yes. So how long do you think it's going to be before regular backers get a machine in their hands they will get it this year definitely like uh we we posted like um i think in the, the campaign says december yeah i don't i don't want to overpromise, but i'm very very positive that this year people will get the thing of course we're going to have the link to the the crowd supply uh on on the show notes and people can order these laptops um and you know and hopefully By the end of 2020 or 2021, people will have them in their hands. So do you have any thoughts on where you're going to go from here? <clears throat> yeah, we have, um, we have some ideas. I have some ideas. Um, uh, we are, with Anna, working at the same time on the Reform standalone keyboard. I'm also using a prototype of that for my daily work. Um, so it's basically the same keyboard that is in Reform, just in a special case. Um, and it has a USB-C connector. Um, It's just funny how many how many free keyboards there are. In fact, we had uh, you know because yeah. we 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 interviewed uh, Phil Hegelberg maybe six months ago, of course, and and you know and he built his and and then we also well we didn't interview but there's the you know the the famous Model One. Uh, it's it's mm. funny how how many how many free software people once they get into hardware they're like I have to build my own keyboard. Sure, yeah, it's almost like this kind of rite of passage. But yeah, we do it because people were interested in the keyboard and um, I, it's, it's very small, it's very compact. We, it, there are not so many slim, you know, like uh, slim mechanical keyboards. Most of them have uh, MX uh, or similar big keys. So this is one of the um, few uh, very compact um Slim mechanical keyboards, and you. the The thing is, if you use a reform and you use another computer, uh, you will have the same keyboard. And if you got used to it, you know, like it's easier to um, <clears throat> to to change in between them. Yeah, to switch than than if you have a very diff different layout. This can help with the typing speed a bit. And yeah, so that's one kind of smaller project. Um, and uh, we are in talks with different people about replacement or alternative uh, CPU modules for reform. So that is a very exciting thing. Um, the possibility that you can exchange 
the main CPU and um, memory and GPU uh, because they are on a little card um, in Reform. So there's uh, we're we're in talks with someone who wants to make a <clears throat> FPGA based uh, board. So that could then have a Risk Five soft core or another core, and um, on another FPGA. A, a, how do you call it a gateware you know implemented graphics card mm. so that that will allow yeah mm. so yeah so basically that we could swap out you know like all of these things that are usually the reasons that, that these machines go out of date right it's like oh this machine is too slow for modern stuff and but here here we can we can change the ram we can change we can upgrade the cpu we can upgrade the graphics card while keeping the same case or even 3D printing a new case. So that's, I mean, uh, that's all. I mean, th that means that ultimately this machine could last for many, many years. And also the fact that you have the ability to, to not just change the battery, like the way many laptops where you can just swap the battery, but, but in fact, it's relatively off-the-shelf battery cells. Yeah, so there's, I mean... You cannot use uh, the cells that go uh, into e-cigarettes or something like uh, the same. They have the same form factor, but they have a different chemistry. So you cannot um, you cannot use standard lithium-ion batteries because those tend to heat up and explode, and you know they're too dangerous. Um, but uh, you can you you have to use the lithium-iron phosphate chemistry, and there are several online shops where you can buy them very cheaply um so for example here in europe i don't i i don't know the prices for the us but here i could buy in the netherlands um from an online shop the replacement batteries and they cost me would cost me around two euro fifty per cell um and there's eight cells right yes yeah so um, for for under 20 yeah uh, for about 20 euro you can totally replace your battery yeah uh And, I mean, which is also one of those parts that often is the first to go, right? Yeah. Because these laptops, you know, you know that you charge them, discharge them, charge them, discharge them, and then at some point the thing starts to be, uh, you know, it doesn't hold its charge as well as long, and this and that, yeah. and then, and then you know you try to go to the manufacturer's website and buy a new battery, but but it's hard to find because they made 50 models of this thing, and then if you want yeah. to, you have to you have to remove the the keyboard and the motherboard and <laughs> you know and don't touch this piece because it's so super fragile and it's yeah, it makes yeah. you afraid to exactly to, to do any kind of maintenance on your machine so so this is exactly the opposite of that right this is you can do it in in you know i, I mean in the video you have you know you just it's just a few screws to unscrew the back and then yeah. and then you can then basically do it with yeah. your hands yeah then just unplug them yeah yeah i mean that's uh, To me, like that's a really huge selling point. And even I would, I would, I would say that, you know, you're talking about making the, you know, the keyboard external. Uh, I, I also can imagine people are going to make other keyboard layouts. Uh, maybe. Yeah, it already yeah. happened actually. Hmm. Oh, really? So, yeah, so, so there's other people making other keyboards for your laptop. Yeah. So there was someone uh, that contacted me and and showed me already like a KiCad 3D render of. Um, of an ortholinear keyboard he designed so uh it, it wasn't completely polished but um 
yeah, he took my my design file and went in there and, and shifted the keys around and I was like, here, don't you want to make a also linear keyboard as well? And um, I was like, that's very cool. I mean, we won't include it in the campaign now because it makes things too complex, but um, this is exactly what I want to see um, as kind of like a third-party add-on or uh, a thing that people could then do. Maybe we will pick it up and, and sell it, you know? I don't know if you've read the book Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. Uh, no, I haven't. I know about it, but I haven't read it, no. It's, it's sort of, um, well, it's, it's I'm, I'm going to spoil it only a tiny bit. It's about this, sure. this uh, young boy. He's 16, 17. He uh, gets wrongly arrested and accused of being a terrorist in the U.S. And mm -hmm. the first thing they do is they... Um, you know, after they arrest him, spoilers, they um, start messing with his phone and his laptop. Mm -hmm. And and in response, you know, the whole the whole rest of the book is him essentially learning uh, computer security and privacy, and also teaching the audience about these same topics as he's going through ah, his, okay. his experience. And uh, you know, this book was written, I think, in like two thousand four, two thousand five, and you know, he mentions things that are fictitious, right? So he yes. has this, he uses a Linux distribution called Paranoid Linux. But now, <laughs> like, Tails is essentially Paranoid Linux, yeah. right? True. Like, mm -hmm. it, you can kind of swap it in. And in, in the book, he notices that his laptop doesn't quite fit right anymore. Like, they, mm -hmm. they've, they've put in a key logger. And he opens it up and he sees that, but and the only reason he notices that is that when they when they when they sealed the laptop back up, it it wasn't quite perfect. And I was okay. thinking when I was watching the video of the M and T reform, how the the back of yours is clear plexiglass. Yeah, <laughs> and it would be really hard to hide something <laughs> exactly in a, yeah, in a, really in a clear plexiglass laptop, <laughs> right? Or at least where where one side is. And and I don't know. I I feel like we're in this convergence of. So we finally have reproducible builds, yes. right? With 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 geeks and the Debian's reproducible builds project, mm -hmm. we now know, or we can have as much faith as we possibly can that the hardware, sorry, that the software we're running is really the software we intend. And with with projects like yours, with this laptop. We have assurances that all the all the drivers are free software. That all the blobs. I think you have one blob that you can't completely replace yet. But yeah. for the most part, everything is free. The specs are free, and the, you know most and uh, all the hardware that is possible to be replaced at this point is free. And it's like we're getting to this place where where we can really have a completely one hundred percent free operating system. Not just for the for the conceptual beauty of oh, isn't this beautiful that it's free and um, which is great and i'm totally there but it's also the security model mm -hmm. of saying like yeah we know what's in this yeah it's there's no surprises mm -hmm. yeah exactly i think that's i think that's a really big component of this and, and in your in your campaign you say like oh well we don't have a camera and we don't have a microphone <laughs> correct yeah right i mean, I, I mean I, that's I, yeah that's a psychological issue mostly um, because you know people have said, yeah, you can you can put a switch in there, physical switch, and you could also disconnect it. But then it's also like, okay, did you remember to switch it off? Um, you know, were you imagining things? Um, and 
you know, the idea was just to get rid of it completely because I saw so many people putting tape on, on their camera and, and and had this feeling that they would they don't trust the device, you know. So um, this was a very conscious decision to really remove these things that you don't even need to remember to switch something off. It's just not there. And of course, if someone really feels strongly about it, they can build a they can build a new screen and a case with yeah. the, the microphone and this and the hardware yeah. switch. And, Easy, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that's the other beautiful part here is that we'll see that maybe actually, you know, maybe maybe people will say, oh no, I really need the microphone and camera. <laughs> sure, yeah, that's that you can know, happen. Maybe it'll just be like, no, I really actually absolutely need that, and I can't live without it, and. So, so somebody will make it, and mm-hmm. that will be the one that wins. And <laughs> you, you'll st- and you'll say like, oh yeah, you know, you'll come back in, in a year or two years, and you'll say, ah, well, it looks like I was wrong. <laughs> People sure, really like cameras. Yeah. That's okay, <laughs> right? We're like, so, so I, you know, I think this is really an exciting project. Uh, I've I've pledged a few <laughs> so that I <laughs> thank you for, for myself and and for my for my fiance. Cool. Uh, and you know, you know, because I think it's important for for everyone to have. And I also got uh, essentially spare parts so that I can uh, ah, sh- should mm-hmm. anything happen, I can re- I can fix it. You know, yes. if I did that with a you know with a, I, I can't really do that with my uh, with my Dell, right? Like, yeah, you know, I can't say like, oh, um, with with the laptop, can you also just send me a box of laptop parts? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean they, they they'll I think they'll they might sell them to me individually. It'll cost me more than the laptop itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but but this is so this is really exciting and great. I really appreciate um, you coming on. Is there anything that that you want to talk about that we haven't maybe covered? Um, maybe uh, also one thing is um, that might be interesting for some. Um, we are so the first customer of the beta there are a few beta versions of reform that that we are building right now and and shipping very very soon now um i think eight people in total and one of them the first who um who bought it was gnode labs and and they work on an alternative operating system called gnode um that works very differently from what we're used to um which is more like a construction kit for operating systems and this will run natively on Reform. Oh, um, cool. And then you can kind of piece together parts of Linux and BSD on top of it. Um, it's more like a interactive hypervisor kind of thing. It's really crazy. That uh, sounds so, cool. Yeah. yeah. I got a demo of it and uh, I was pretty excited about it. Um, and uh, yeah, the other thing is that... Um, the FPGA-based um, CPU card that I was talking about will be very interesting because um, this will allow you to... I mean, it's more a conceptual thing. It won't be super fast, you know. Um, I hope it will be... It, it should be fast enough to, to use, for example, a terminal uh, to, um, you know, to do your... Uh, to do things on in the cloud or something. Um, uh, and, and to to do email and so on. Um, but this will have all the CPU and the graphics defined in software because it's FPGA based. So um, that is kind of, that will be kind of the prototype of what can be in the future, like where you can download for your chip 
um, not only the documentation, but the source code of of the hardware, you know, the source code of um, the chip's logic gates. Uh, so that will be pretty interesting, I think. That would be interesting, and, and that would allow for iteration of hardware in a way that we really haven't seen because most of us don't have FPGA hardware. Yeah, and uh, Bunny is doing, like Bunny of no Novena fame, um, is doing a little thing that that I also, like, I, I uh, kind of bumped into him, was introduced to him at the uh, end of last year in, in CCC Congress, which was a big honor for me. Um, and uh, he had a prototype of his new device called the Be Trusted. And, B, and, and that was also very, um, a very neat idea of having a FPGA-based um, handheld computer for security purposes um, where you could validate you know, like kind of as reproducible hardware into the gate level, um, you can validate that nobody has tampered with your um, device on that level. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, there will be quite some more dimensions of this to come. Like, like reform is at the current iteration went very far, opening up the input devices and opening up the most of the motherboard um, and uh, all of the, the case design and so on. So we kind of have now a platform um, for further experimentation and to take this concept further. So this is not the end of the, of the line, you know, but um, I, I, I thought it was really time to get things rolling. Get yeah, things this going. is really exciting. I mean, I think that there's this convergence, as you've, you've said, of, of, getting you know free hardware these uh looking at this geode os it's it's microkernel capabilities based you know mm -hmm. it's all the things that we've discussed on the show before um and, and uh you know fpgas which you know software defined we haven't really discussed software defined radio and software defined True. digital signal processing but that's such an um an exciting place for us to go True. With, with these with these uh, operating systems, so um, this is this is amazing. I uh, I really hope that you'll come back, uh, you know, once once things are are launched more fully and uh, and be able to to tell us um, what's what's going on and what's new from from there. So so thank you, Lucas. Uh, it's been really amazing having you on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> See you here next time. Libra Lounge is hosted and produced by Sandra Klasky. Connect with the Libra Lounge community by joining our IRC channel at hash Libra Lounge on Freenote, following us on the Fediverse at Libra Lounge at floss.social, emailing us at podcast at LibraLounge.org, or following us on Twitter at Libra Lounge. Our theme song is Jazzy Sax Guitar and Organ at the Club by Admiral Bob. This episode is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. See you next time.